Yaya Fanusi is the Director of Analysis here at the Foundation for Defense of Democracy's Center on Sanctions and Illicit Finance. He spent seven years as both an economic and counterterrorism analyst in the CIA, where he regularly briefed White House policymakers, U.S. military personnel, and federal law enforcement. In 2009, he spent three months in Afghanistan providing analytic support to senior military officials. I'm proud to call him my colleague and eager to talk with him about some of the issues and controversies he's been working on and thinking about here at FDD and today on Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are no Every U.S. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the game. We are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. I am fearful for what happens to Turkey now. If you thought that it was dangerous that a coup might have toppled this democracy, think about what this very autocratic man might do. Yeah, yeah, thanks for making the journey from your office to our studio. Uh, just down the hall from the kitchen here at FDDHQ. <laughs> <laughs> thanks. Thanks, Cliff. I'm glad I made it all the way yeah, over here. Yeah, very good of you to do so. Uh, it, it, in recent years, you've been focusing on subjects that are both complex and cutting edge, such as cryptocurrencies and blockchains. And what little I know about these subjects, I really – you've taught me. I've learned, I've learned from you. But today I want to start at least by asking you about your journey, not just professionally, but spiritually, intellectually – and in other ways. Maybe start with a little bit about where you grew up geographically and the intellectual and cultural environment since that's also a subject we're going to explore in greater depth. Absolutely. Um, well, it all started uh, – you know, I'm I'm a Californian, <laughs> born and raised in California. Um, I was raised in a not particularly religious home. My uh, father is from West Africa, from Sierra Leone, came here in the 1960s uh, for college. My mother, an African-American, born and uh, raised in Los Angeles. And so I grew up mostly in Southern California. Uh, my mother from a Christian family. My dad was actually from a, a Christian family but was very you know, non-religious when he came here in the 60s. Uh, and um, uh, I would say my journey can be captured into uh, – captured by four stages or four periods. Um, my teenage years, I was really influenced by – I would say you know, we, we didn't have the term SJW back then social in the 90s justice in the warriors. social justice warriors. Um, but I would say in the, you know, the, the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, I was um, you know, really impacted by um, sort of the hip-hop political social conscious, consciousness and, and militancy of that age. Um, so when I went to college, I went to UC Berkeley, mm -hmm. studied uh, economics – and um, yeah, I was really influenced by that. I would say I actually had, uh, you know, some militant ideas as a young uh, fr Berkeley freshman uh, um, in my my early days, and that was sort of my first stage, my uh, the roots of my sort of early intellectual development, I'd say. Mm. Um, but that shifted. That shifted actually during Berkeley. Uh, in my years at Berkeley, I soon became more spiritual, less political. Mm. Um, I went on this own my own journey of of looking, you know, asking the questions of life. 
life and and how did I fit into into the universe? And that spiritual journey led me to Islam, and I converted to Islam. Uh, uh, right before I graduated. And my discovery or my exploration of Islam was a very private one. So I'd say I sort of actually went from, you know, being aware of a lot of the geopolitical militant rhetoric that even jihadists would use, I sort of had, had engaged them before I came to Islam. You know, if you look at, you know, I would say before I was spiritual, I looked at I sort of um, uh, regarded a figure like Malcolm X in those days for his sort of political militancy, um, not the religious side of it. And then when I became Muslim, when I converted, um, that sort of rhetoric didn't appeal to me so much because of the spiritual message. And that journey was one of reading the Quran, uh, reading the Quran, uh, the English translation of it. Uh, So that was sort of the the second stage. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I should yeah. just stop there. Well, we could, well, we'll go on. Uh, th- this is a personal question, Dota. How did your parents, not least your father, who's from West Africa, and I spent, as you know, three years in West Africa or in Africa, based in West Africa. What, what was their response to your doing that? How did they feel about that? Yeah, it was very interesting. They both had very open responses. By that time, um, this was toward the, toward the end of my career, uh, my Berkeley career, my mom had actually become a born-again, born-again Christian. Mm. So she had sort of returned. My parents had divorced. Mm. So by that time, she was actually going to church more. And, and I actually remember one time she figured out something was going on with me. And she asked about my, you know, sort of my religious leanings. And um, I actually mentioned to her, I said, oh, you know, I've sort of been reading the the Quran and uh, exploring this. And she had a very open uh, approach to it. She said, you know, she was more concerned uh, with me believing in God. That that was sort of her, even though she was sort of bored again, that she wasn't concerned about, uh, she wasn't against Islam. And this was in 1996, 97. My father, uh, do do whatever you do whatever you want. He was even though he wasn't religious himself, he was very open and and so I had no no real issues except for some you know a little bit of awkwardness with some family members who were maybe more uh, uh, strident Christians in the beginning. But there was a mutual respect, so I didn't have a, a big issue with my conversion with the family. Now. You're African-American. I point that out not because you don't know it, but because we're doing a podcast people can't necessarily tell. Did you ever think that, oh, the Nation of Islam, Louis Farrakhan? So no, because the early early years – so like when I was really interested in Malcolm X, the Nation of Islam and Louis Farrakhan I would say had some appeal. But um, it was more because of the political, uh, the political stances and the political rhetoric, the black, the nationalist rhetoric. Mm. Um, when I, but I never was, I wasn't attracted to the the ideology in the full ideology. So when I started looking at Islam, it was a very um, spiritually focused, and it, it wasn't racial at all. In fact, I can remember actually reading the reading the Quran at one point in my in my college uh, my apartment, and reading one verse which said something to the effect of, you know, um, distinction or honor is not in distinct and honor only comes in from righteousness, not from uh, from tribe and from color or anything like that. And I remember actually reading that and reflecting. Reflecting on this is this is counter to what I believed, bef- you know, year, years ago as a teenager. This this idea of not thinking about race as my sole identity, or uh, it, it it there really was a transformation in my thinking that honestly, my engagement with the with the Quran sort of helped with. Um, uh, so thinking more about my place in the world um, as a as a human. 
really developed as I engaged the Quran, as I sort of, you know, started looking at um, Muhammad's life, Muhammad the prophet, these things sort of almost erased the the um, the sort of the narrow mindedness that I, I had earlier. And my engagement with, you know, the, the nation of Islam, I, I saw the nation of Islam as, I mean, the, 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 again, the ideology didn't appeal to me as a, as a, as a seeker, as, as a Muslim, someone really looking at the sources and not thinking so much about the cultural baggage and the, the political and the, the SJW narrative um, was uh, just resonated less with me. Um, I will say, though, that it's interesting because, and I don't know, I don't know how, how deep we want to go into the history, but there's an interesting dynamic which happened with my conversion, which is I was re- I read a Quran. I was my mother, who was raised in L.A. but born in New York, um, her biological father in the, I guess, the 50s, 60s, joined the Nation of Islam. Mm-hmm. Now, she didn't grow up with him. She didn't know, you know, she she was raised in California. And when he died in the early 90s, my mom flew from L.A. to New York, went to the funeral. And I don't really know the extent of his engagement with the nation. You know, maybe he was in it for a few years. He had other kids. Um, but when he when they had a funeral, they had an Islamic funeral from him, for him. And he, uh, my mom was given a copy of the Quran and another sort of Islamic book from her uncle, her biological uncle. And uh, they just gave it to her, you know, because of the funeral. And, and then she, she brought it back. And so interestingly, um, when she came back to California, she gave me that Quran. She said, oh, you can have this was again, I was in high school. I wasn't really into religion. She said, you can have this Quran and this book, the sayings of Muhammad. And I kept that book on my shelf for a few years, you know, for maybe four or five, six years before I really started looking at it. So it's interesting that it was, uh, you know, that sort of that black nationalist NOI of the 60s, 50s and 60s sort of indirectly impacted my exposure later to to um, Islam proper or you know whatever whatever you want to call it and we'll we'll get into what you call it but you you I know you don't identify yourself either as Shia or or Sunni and I kind of wonder don't don't you have to be one or the other I mean this is a, a, a split or division in Islam that's persisted for 1400 years are there many Imams who would encourage you not to identify with one or or, or the other you know, this is uh, – to answer that last question, there, many would by default would probably say that I am Sunni. Other people would say. Other some, – some imams might say, well, you're, you're, you're not following the uh, sort of the Shia scholarship, you know, you're not, in terms of how you practice and what you do. You're not going to a Shia mosque. Um, they would say that by default you're Sunni. And in some ways, I might say that as a technicality, but I'd be very um, – I would sort of strongly uh, rebut that characterization because when I came to the religion, it was reading sort of the key Islamic source, right? Reading the Quran, learning about uh, Muhammad's life. And you know, I soon discovered that the split between Sunni and Shia started – as a political uh, uh, debate, political fight immediately after Muhammad's death. Um, And when I realized that, I realized that, okay, what attracts me, what I'm sort of signing up for 
isn't really this political fight over the leadership after the prophet's life. You know, should it have been Ali or should it have been, should it have been Abu Bakr? Um, okay, Abu Bakr got it, was the, the caliph, and then and then Ali came much later. Um, but that really isn't the essence of what I cared about. Um, I was really and am interested in what I would characterize God's message to man that went to Muhammad or came to Muhammad. And what does that mean? Uh, so I see the Sunni Shia split, which of course impacted you know, uh, how Islam developed, how a classical Islamic scholarship grew and, and manifested, and of course how empires expanded. And uh, you know the, the the whole idea of the ulama is based in these. The, yes, uh, the the Islamic sc- scholars, scholars, right? The, the, yeah, the learned. Um, but I think you, you you tap into a really interesting question, which is, what is my relationship to classical Islamic scholarship? And I think this is key to some of what we're going to discuss, because I would say that I have, I mean, if you're if you're a Muslim and you want to respect the Islamic tradition, you have to have a a respect for the scholarship that had that that came down before. You know, centuries of 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 scholars who sort of looked at these Islamic sources and and made judgments. But there's a difference between respecting that body of knowledge and being locked into it because what a lot of the if you look at the let's say the the main the four schools of uh, of thought in the sunni right in 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 the sunni understanding of islam it's pretty clear that you have an established authority a body of knowledge and that interpretation only goes so far um it, you're really boxed in and even and those who sort of i would say overemphasize the classical islamic scholarship um would not allow for a lot of interpretation, would not allow – there's this idea of the doors of ishtihad, you know, which is the idea that you can judge and make reasoning about the religion and interpretation, that those doors have been closed with the, with those, you know. And for, for practical – Muslims agree with that. That's Correct. been a controversy. We know people who have objected to that. That 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 is a a dogma that must be obeyed. But yes, ex- but you're right. Yeah. Ex- exactly. And so, uh, getting back to your your question, I think you know, on a very practical level, you know, I can't define myself as as fully as as Sunni because I'm not limit for uh, because I did not sign up for a a political. Uh, uh, you know, for for a, I didn't sign up with a political party when I came to this religion. Right, you were looking for it in a more spiritual sense, but you make a very important point that I hadn't quite thought of before, which is that the Sunni-Shia split is, as you say, political. What does that mean? What's the most basic, mm-hmm. fundamental question in political science? Who governs? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And on what basis? What's legitimacy? Mm-hmm. That's really the question being asked. Mm-hmm. Is, is it on the basis of your heritage? Is it on the basis of your scholarship? Is it the, on the basis of what the 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 worshippers, the adherents, the ummah, the Muslim community, what they want? How do they decide? How do they express it? It is a question that we have right now. Who decides who rules in any country? Democratic rule? Monarchical rule? Rule as in Iran by the jurisprudence, by the scholars of Islam who have made themselves into, I would argue, an elite that cannot be questioned. It's a very, very basic question. It's a question people have been asking for 1,400 years, probably longer, but it became very – but in a way, 
the, the, it really came to a head with that, and it's never and it's a, a a conflict that has never been resolved. All right, moving from that a little bit, uh, how you became as a Berkeley graduate and a Muslim convert, <laughs> uh, how you found yourself uh, working mm. for the CIA, probably yeah. not the usual route for. Berkeley Muslim graduates. I mean, <laughs> probably not a huge crowd of you guys, right? right. Am I am uh, I right absolutely. on that? Good, good guess. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think that was the the second half of my journey, right? So first, I discovered Islam as a very private, uh, you know, religious experience. Um, after I graduated from Berkeley, I uh, got a Fulbright scholarship and I studied in Ghana for a year. Did a research project in Ghana for a year, and that was interesting because I this was a few months after I converted. So I went from this very private process, uh, you know, in Berkeley, the Bay Area, California, and then going off to Ghana, trying to figure out, oh, where do I go for Friday prayers? You know, who, Ghana is not a particularly Muslim. Exactly. People may not, not know this, but Africa, mm-hmm. but Africa, right. that part of Africa, mm-hmm. I spent time there. That's more more Christian. You have mm-hmm. to go further north yes. to get to the Muslim areas. Yes. Yeah. yes. So that was my exposure to – I was exposed to Islam and Muslims outside of the United States. I was I was exposed to different interpretations. First of all, the West you know, West Africans and there was a variety because I was in – you know there, there were people – I went to the college campus for Friday prayers and there were some people who maybe were more, more strict, maybe influenced by the Salafist interpretations. There were others who were more flexible um, and then I actually – had a, you know, a, a unique experience because I had the opportunity to make Hajj when I was in Ghana. That also exposed me. I remember being on Hajj and so uh, the most pilgrimage. people know pilgrimage <laughs> to Mecca. Okay, yeah. right. Making the pilgrimage to Mecca, and I, as a you know young young guy, I actually went with the uh, with a delegation of Ghanaians. I basically because I wasn't in the United States, I had to go with the Ghanaian Muslims. Yeah, yeah. So I noticed differences. I noticed how women, uh, the Ghanaian women. Uh, and how they practice Islam and their uh, their uh, visibility was much different than when I was in the shops in uh, Mecca and, and Medina and seeing the Saudis. So I, I this at this age I was really seeing these differences, different interpretations. I remember going to London um, uh, before I went to Ghana and going to you know different mosques and seeing again different interpretations. So I think I was exposed to different voices within within right within right the because, and, and which a lot of people are not. They think of Islam as one thing. Exactly. And this is something we're going to explore more in, mm-hmm. in this conversation is the various interpretations of Islam. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there were changes. I mean, when I lived in West Africa for three years in the 1980s, I would say the there were very few Salafis, very little Wahhabism back at that point I- introduced. Muslims in those days in Africa have strong Sufi influence. Um, of course, in places like Timbuktu, they had shrines and great libraries which the Salafi jihadists, when they got there, broke down, burned, slammed, considered it un-Islamic. I mean, what they were telling the, the Africans is um, your religion has marinated in African culture for too long and it is no longer true Islam and we're not going to let you continue with this sort of heresy. We're going, to, we're going to teach you one way or another what true Islam is all about. Now, of course, that was also the case in Anbar province in, in Iraq uh, as well and Parts of Afghanistan that you you know. All right. So the, talking about your – so you get to the CIA. <laughs> That's a big I, mean, dig- I love digression. We do a lot of digression on these shows. That's right, okay. Right, right. Well, so uh, – yes. So – 
when I got back, you know, I, I finally got settled in, in a, one particular location when I came back to the U.S. And I think, you know, I, I, I solidified my Muslim American identity when I got back to the U.S. I went to graduate school at Columbia University. Did you feel more American coming back from Africa? Um, I'd say so. I think that experience – well, you know what? When I came back, I think I was trying to figure out what does it mean to be an American Muslim, honestly, because I didn't – you know, it was – I was having this, this sort of foreign experience and coming back to the States, uh, it took me – you know, it took me a, a while to sort of find – Friends to find community to find folks who I I think were more um, I found other people who were more maybe balanced in their outlook because I knew I didn't want to do what the Saudis were doing right. you know and I I just I just felt like now it's time for me to figure out as an American what you know what should I latch on to or how should I live this the the, yeah. the religion um, and so that happened I think I I sort of reconciled that. During that experience, and as I was get, leaving grad school, you know, you know, sort of figuring out what I would, what I wanted to do, I went through a few different things, but eventually, um, I got a degree in a master's in international affairs, um, and so I, yeah, I got an opportunity when I talked to someone about the CIA, and I had not, I had never thought about the intelligence community. Um, I went to graduate school right before 9-11. So I was not thinking about counterterrorism. But when someone came up to me and sort of explained that uh, what, what it was like to be an intelligence analyst, um, I joined the CIA not for counterterrorism. I actually joined as an economic analyst focused on Africa. That was, you know, that made mm-hmm. sense. That was my, sure. my background. Um, and it was, incidentally, it was the London bombing which yeah. the 2005 London uh, underground bombing uh, by four West British Muslims. You know, right. most of them, uh, the three of them at least were born in Britain. They were all raised in Britain. One was a convert. That happened in 2005 at the you know, first several months of my career at the agency. And when it happened, for me, that was a, that was a uh, you know, a, an important moment because um, before, as an economic analyst doing my thing and working on my my particular issues, terrorism, even though I was concerned about it, like most people, you know, I still saw it as Al Qaeda is over there. This is a Middle East sort of problem. Um, and then when this happened, I really and this was when it first happened. We didn't know necessarily the, the Al Qaeda links when it first happened of, of of the perpetrators. So when it first happened, I was thinking, wow, these guys are young Muslims in their twenties. Born in the West, I understand them. I understand that identity, and I started to think about, hmm, well, here I am at the at the CIA. Maybe I should be <laughs> working on something else. Maybe I should be trying to stop this. Mm. And it was just that natural hmm. inclination, you know, that curiosity. I talked to some coworkers, you know, hmm, so what is what is the CT fight like? I, I really was right. not thinking about it when I was first hired. Right. So that led me to work uh, work counterterrorism. I was assigned uh, later to the National Counterterrorism Center, which is an interagency. Um, organization, folks coming from all parts of the of the intelligence community, and I worked on an Al Qaeda team uh, or a team looking at Al Qaeda and Sunni extremists and threats to the homeland. Mm-hmm. And one of the first uh, um, areas that I worked on uh, 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 was the threat. Uh, coming from uh, Al Qaeda, expi- Al Qaeda inspired mm. extremists and terrorists, mm-hmm. folks mm-hmm. that were uh, in the U.S. and and you know figures like uh, ideologues like uh, like Anwar al awlaki and and the like. Uh, and I we, we, I want to talk more about him, but uh, soon. But let me but just go one step at a time. Now, look, there are people who would say, "I'm Muslim in the CIA. 
how can we trust him? And there are also Muslims, and you've written about this, <laughs> who would disapprove of Muslims working in America's national security establishment. They'd say such an affiliation is, to use your word, at odds with Islam. Um, you put it this way, and I think this is, I, I want to read this be, and, and quote you and let you elaborate on it because I think you said it well. Many Muslims see America's national security focus on violent Islamist groups as evidence of an anti Islam conspiracy. And many non Muslims assume that religiously adherent Muslims must sympathize with the jihadist cause. I, you know, I, I think you're. You 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 put it put it very well. That is the challenge. That was a challenge. I would imagine that was a part of the challenge for you, both in your terms of your professional life and your private life, your religious life. Yeah, yeah. In what helped me, and it didn't happen overnight. Remember, when I went into the CIA, I wasn't thinking counterterrorism. Right. <laughs> so so I I, must, I wasn't. Of course, I thought that that would be possible, but that wasn't my intention. So working at the agency and first of all getting a, a, a clearer understanding of foreign policy, you know, seeing seeing the threats that that we face as Americans, sort of from the inside, understanding the nature of um, uh, you know getting beyond the rhetoric, the, the the political rhetoric, and 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 seeing the the true nature of threats and the difficulty of foreign policy, I think gave me a more nuanced understanding of um, the the fight against terrorism. So you you've also written. And, and, I'm, and I'm perhaps jumping ahead in terms of your thinking, but I think it's important to, and, and I want to make sure Muslim Americans should be at the forefront of establishing the security of their neighbors. You've written it that it's necessary for Muslims to take ownership of the fight against terrorism. You, this is, I want you to elaborate on that. I think this is very, this is, these are important ideas that I don't think a lot of people say uh, that Muslims must be at the forefront. And it's also at variance with what I would call the politically correct view that, and we're going to we'll talk more about this, but I, I got, I've got to bring it in that uh, all this terrorism it either has nothing to do with Islam, even, or it's a totally false, twisted uh, version of Islam that, that that no, 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 it's we we should it's 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 perverse. And you're saying, well, no, neither. It's not. That's not quite precise. Yes, yes. There is a. We're talking about an ideology that is theologically based, mm -hmm. and you're coming to terms with it. Because if you say that it has nothing to do with Islam, then Muslims can say, well, this has nothing to do with me. I'm going to sit on the side. You guys, good luck, because it has nothing to do with me. You're saying no. This engages us. So this has to engage us. Yes, because the the first thing is that. Within the Muslim community, right, and and I can talk about the American, Muslim American community in particular, right. There is a very uh, let me put it like this: the IQ on terrorism, jihadism, and even foreign policy has to be increased. Mm -hmm. The dialogue of uh, about these issues, right, is so uh, it's colored by uh, things unrelated to the actual threat and the things that are happening in the world. You know, so when most people think about 
the, the conversation about terrorism. They're thinking about some sort of you know p- political debates. They're thinking about pundits on 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 cable news. They're not they're not taking a a measured uh, and a sober uh, look at what's happening in the world. You know, for a good example. When I first became a, a counterterrorism analyst, I didn't broadcast it. I didn't go to the mosque and say, "Hi, I'm yeah yeah. I work for the CIA. I'm here to pray. <laughs> here to help you. I, I, I'm here to help you." No, I mean, I was I, you know I was a practice you know. As a practicing Muslim, I did what I would always do. I did share share it with friends that I trusted, Muslim friends that I, that I that I trusted. And the thing that I learned when I you know shared this, there were very bright, intelligent, you know, you know college educated you know friends that I respect. Um, who, when I told them, oh, I'm you know I'm going to start working counterterrorism, I had friends who who said. That 9-11 thing, that, that – you don't really think that, that Muslims did that, right? I mean I had smart yeah. people yeah. tell me that, right? And so of course the good thing was that now I could say, look, I could look them in the eye and say, yes, that was Osama. It's, this is not some made-up thing, right? So, so, um, so Muslims – so first of all, we have to really get a good sense of what's happening in the world. The, the, I'm not going to jump ahead, but I know just even the idea of what are we facing – there is something. There is a jihadist movement. You know, you're willing to use that word jihadist. I am. I'm. I, I use that to, to me. It's it's precise. It's clear. It actually tells you how people view jihad. Um, you know, I think you know you're using jihad. I mean, you can say that jihad is very broad, and you can you know people talk about that all, all the time. But jihadist is very clear. You the jihad jihad violent jihad is something that's incumbent upon people to impose a certain sort of you know, political Islamic state. Um, that is a movement that is happening. Al Qaeda was that ISIS. I mean, th- this is something that is very real, and um, and 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 I think a lot of a lot of Muslim, a lot of my co-religionists don't want to look at look at it. And not just your co-religious. Look, the last podcast we did, a very interesting podcast, Steve Hadley, former national security advisor to President Bush, Nancy Lindbergh of U.S. Institute for Peace, a report from the U.S. Institute for Peace. It's all about extremism. They cannot bring themselves to put an adjective before the word extremism. They yeah. cannot do it. They know – we all know we're talking about kind of uh, – it's a movement to extremism. It sees an Islamic state in the future, but you can't say – they don't say jihadists. Mm-hmm. They don't say jihad. They don't mm-hmm. say militant Islam. Mm-hmm. They don't want to deal with the idea, you correct me if I'm wrong in any part of this, that there is a movement within Islam, within the Ummah, within the world of Islam, which is very varied in all sorts of ways, that is that focuses specifically on the idea that jihad is a 21st century obligation. And by jihad, we mean not inner struggle. We mean by the sword. We need to create the Dar al-Islam, the realm of Islam, and it must be global. And that means we must take down the disbelievers, the unbelievers, the infidels, all of them who oppose us. They are all, they are all by definition enemies of Islam and therefore must be fought starting now. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. basically right. And you've talked mm-hmm. about this. It's a, and what you, I think what you mm-hmm. suggested is, yeah, that was a 7th century interpretation of Islam. Mm-hmm. It is not necessarily what the, should be the 21st century yes. interpretation of Islam for all sorts of reasons. Mm-hmm. And that's important because um, you know, it's often – so we have to get past this, this barrier of not wanting to use certain language because it, you know, it reflects a very simplistic view. And, and here's, here are the traps that, that happen when we don't really want to name things. You know, f- for example um, – even the way we talk about terrorism, like everyone's against terrorism. Most people, you know, 99% of people, you know, everyone says terrorism is bad. If you don't talk about the jihadist movement, 
then you leave an opening for people to talk about being rebels and being insurgents and fighting against Assad, the Assad regime. And, and um, uh, you know, they're not you – know, some of these groups are against ISIS. Uh, but, you know, so there's this gateway of fighting, maybe fighting an invader, fighting an intruder, you know, quote unquote, or fighting a, a, a corrupt government – where you can be a rebel and sometimes because we're not focused on the movement and who these folks are, people sort of leave an opening and the jihadist movement creeps in. A lot of these rebel groups, uh, okay, maybe they're, maybe they're not doing a suicide bombing, but they're part of the global jihadist movement. They're part of a movement that has a certain ideology, that has certain aims, that sees the world, that sees the religion in the way that you described. And that ideology is problematic. And we have to be very clear. So it's not even just about being against terrorism. Yeah, no one wants innocent people to be killed. It's really – if we want to, to stop the al-Qaeda's and the ISIS, we really have to um, uh, call out this movement. You know this this the the jihadist movement how they see jihad and that's something that gets missed if we're not willing to point at the ideology or name it or specify it. The only thing I'll add though is is I'll say um, the so f coming from the intelligence community though a lot of the debate over language I would say is is less pronounced because I I honestly feel that especially in the early days yes there was some you know there was some debate about uh, you know islam islam is in the first few years i think the intelligence community was trying to figure out well what do we how do we see all of this and listening to different scholars but but uh, for the most part within the intelligence community people use precise language you know um, i mean i can't talk about when things after i left but when i was there Islamism, you know, within, you know, in terms of an intelligence product, if you're writing something, you know, Islamist group, jihadist groups, you know, that was that's the language that we used. We we call it what it is. Now, I know it's different out in the public. So there there is a difference there. That was sort of classified. That was among yourselves yeah, more than it was for public consumption. It was. Yeah. Okay. Because you're talking, you're, you're, yeah. you're, you're, hey, you're talking about what's going on and how are we going to fight it and how are we, you know, what is our analysis of it? So, so there wasn't, um, uh, you know, jihadist was not a bad, a banned term at all uh, within the intelligence community, at least right. yeah, where I was. And uh, so much I want to talk about, and we're running a little low on time, but if, if you're sitting down as an intelligence agent or, or as, a, as a Muslim with a Salafi jihadist and he is saying to you, no, yeah, yeah, you got it wrong. You you've been influenced by the infidels. Mm -hmm. You uh, you're part of the problem, mm -hmm. and which may mean he's going to debate you, or may mean he's going to kill you, <laughs> because as you know, and a lot of people don't, mm -hmm. the Salafi jihadists don't want to just kill infidels. They want to kill those they see as having strayed from the religion. That's yes. that's out there. Mm -hmm. um, and he says you have to fight jihad. That's your religious obligation. If you do not understand that, you do not understand Islam. What do you respond? I would I would. Point to him to even the sources that he's using for his argument. I would come back to him with the sources, but from a very different perspective. So, so here's the thing: the 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 debate against uh, the counterargument for jihadists lies in the Quran and the the Sunnah, the example. Of Muhammad itself, I would I would point out what he's doing. He is making an analogy uh, 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 with between, let's say, 
Muhammad's fight against the Meccans who were non-Muslim, the, 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 the polytheists of the, the Quraysh, the tribes of Mecca and the uh, and, and his fight of today. And I would say if you look at the, the Quran, in the Quran, it says that Muhammad and I'd use you know I'd use language that he would know. So I'd use the Arab, you know, I'd use Arabic terms where it says uh, Muhammad is 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 uh, the best uswa is and that term uswa means a pattern pattern of conduct. People use the term sunnah, which means example, but that's not the Quranic term that applies to Muhammad. The the Quranic term it says that Muhammad has the best example pattern. Well, it's better translated as a pattern of conduct. Uswa means like how you were fashioned, how something is. You know, it's almost like not the blueprint, but it's the inner, you know, pattern of something. And it doesn't say sunnah, uh, not that the sunnah is not important. And I would say that that shows you that Muhammad for us is a model of, of character and internal, you know, an internal model that we should be following. It does not say that everything that uh, it does not say that he is a carbon copy that that we imitate mm -hmm. so so i mean that's just just one idea i would look at the concepts that i'd say he's perverting or that his interpretation is off and i would show through quranic reasoning how his interpretation does not necessarily hold up. And the thing is, and I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm actually happy to, you know, I've, I, I think I've matured in my, my you know, 40 some years where I don't feel like everyone's going to believe my interpretation or my approach, you know, but, but I'm fine with, with conveying and countering based on what I understand. And, and this is something people, people don't understand. Um, I think on the right and the left is that there have been these arguments within Islam for centuries. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they've been debates. Sometimes they've been wars over these things. I mean, they, they, it's not always, you know, op-eds and, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. and, yeah. and forums at the, <laughs> for debates at the school setting at, at all uh, over how much you have to take on faith and how much you're allowed to use critical thinking and reasoning to come to your conclusions. That's, that's, that's been a, 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 real, yeah. a real important debate. Mm -hmm. uh, the Salafi jihadists might say, well, yeah, yeah, you're innovating and you've gone too far. You're not allowed to do that. But on what basis does he say that? What is within the realm of Quranic thinking and what is beyond that realm? Mm -hmm. And part of what I'm getting at is yeah. you have both those on the right who say, I agree. Essentially, they're saying, I agree with the Salafi jihadists. That's the only interpretation of Islam that makes any sense. That's why all Muslims mm -hmm. must be suspect and all Muslims are untrustworthy because there is only this one interpretation. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then there are those on the left who are saying, oh, no, that's not even Islam at all. It's a perverted version of Islam. Yeah. Neither is true, but you're walking an intellectual tightrope mm -hmm. if you try to make that argument, which we are trying to make. I think you're trying to make it. I think I'm trying to make it. I don't know if we're getting it across right. to people who are listening. Yeah. But it is an intellectual tightrope to mm -hmm. say, no, there are these various. Look, the, if you look, I'm going to say one more thing. I'll let you go. If you look at the realm of, uh, of Islam, you have Ismailis. Once upon a time, they were very violent. Nowadays, they're not. You have Ahmadis. They're considered heretics because they go too far can, by, the, by the view of most other Muslims. You have Sufis, once again, very violent in the past, not particularly so nowadays. I mean, we, we can go on and on with the different groups, and it's hard for, and it's hard for people to distinguish among all this. And it takes a lot of study. People don't have time. But that's the thing. It's a matter of interpretation, which also brings us to this point that I do want to get in here. People talk about radicalization as if it's a disease that you catch. 
And if we're talking, if we're accepting that there are these various interpretations from ones that are absolutely militant and violent and hostile to non-believers and to people like you who believe somewhat differently, you guys see what I'm trying. What I'm trying to get at. Let me let me let you take it from there. There's this this phenomenon. I think you're you're familiar with it, where people uh, will often say. Well, those terrorists, they're not Muslims, right. you know, and right. I oh, got to beg to differ. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's this idea of trying to uh, nullify, trying to negate uh, the fact that Osama bin Laden, he was Muslim. I mean, I don't think he was a good Muslim, right? He, we, we have to accept that with and – that's, and that's maybe the catch-22 is that we can't say that, oh, this is just this one skewed view and that it's so, it, it's so far from what anyone believes. No, it's actually linked to uh, – it, it, there's – people, even if they're not on the bin Laden spectrum, there's, you know, unfortunately some sympathy because we don't really focus on, you know, we, we're not clear about what we're dealing with. You know, I would say, yeah, bin Laden was a Muslim. You know, we have to really accept the fact that these folks are here. They're within our midst. They're not aliens. Yes, they're not the majority. And the, the violent, violent folks are not the majority. But we have to accept that obviously what they're saying has some resonance. And so how do we get to – there's the question, you know, uh, and maybe this is what you're getting at, the idea of the root of the problem. Can right. we solve the root? Right. You know, what are the root causes? And I guess my response to that is you know, this idea of root is, is, is singular and that doesn't make sense. This is not a singular thing. We're not going to, you know, implement one program and one policy, and then the Muslim, you know, world's going to, you know, you know, be waving the American flag. Uh, radicalization is complex and complicated because the human psyche is complex. And so, so what I say is, we're not going to have some po policy to just solve all of this. But what we should do as smart people, let's sort of isolate what the problems are. What are the building blocks that maybe we can impact? What are the things that, as a Muslim, I should be doing and, and talking to my Muslim, you know, brothers and sisters about doing uh, if I don't want this uh, narrative to resonate? You know, what are the practical things that we could do and need to do? And not think of Salafi jihadism or radicalism as simply, oh, the product of poverty or simply the product of a lost opportunity or something that a foreign aid program can solve. It's not quite – it's just not quite that simple um, it, yeah, because you have – you can become radicalized. But again, it's not – you can embrace – a, a, a violent, a militant interpretation of Islam if you're living in Ghana, if you're living in London, if you're living in Paris, if you're living in Egypt or Saudi Arabia, any of those places. And you can be as wealthy as bin Laden or mm -hmm. absolutely dirt poor in some village in Upper Egypt. And, and I agree. And and maybe the you know the one other thing I'll say to this is a lot of that, uh, a lot of those comments about, you know, we'll solve through poverty or whatever, they don't deal with, well, then what is the competing ideology? What should it be? And I'm not one, I'm not naive to think that there's going to be one great, like, I'm going to come up with the, the right Islam. And if everyone just practiced Yahya's Islam, then there'd be no, you know, jihadism. It's, it's not that. But I, I do think we have to realize that the jihadists have a power narrative. They have, you know, glory, mission. They have something that is strong, right? So we shouldn't think that in the absence of an alternative vision that gets propagated, you know, in the absence of that, that we're, we're going to make any headway. So it also means that there's going to have to be a competing narrative that, that I'd say Muslims have to convey, which speaks to 
to the, the, the it, it speaks to the human psyche and and all these things, but th- that I think is more in tune with the the spirit of of the religion um, uh, that 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 I came to know. I'm gonna my last question is gonna be we only have a few minutes left, but I want to but it's a practical example of what you're saying, which is that somebody you know about Anwar Al-Awlaki, right? Because he was an American citizen. He was long regarded by the government and by the media as a moderate Islamic cleric. He was a Muslim chaplain at George Washington University. The New York Times described him as representing a new generation of Muslim leader capable of merging East and West. And of course, as you know well, but I'll remind the audience, he turned out to be a senior al-Qaeda leader, propagandist, recruiter whom the U.S. assassinated using a Hellfire missile in 2011. Just talk a little bit about him and his journey, which you learned a lot about and know a lot about. Yes, um, quite a good, an interesting note to perhaps end on. Aulaki is a very good case to help us understand the resonance of the jihadist message, and his own journey too. Um, uh, you know, t- you know, tells us you know tells us quite a bit. So. Um, you know, I I fell into um, looking at Aulaki in uh, I think around 2007. It was interesting because Aulaki was in a Yemeni prison at some point. You know, he was an American uh, uh, imam, and eventually he left. And there's you know, I don't know how much detail we want to get into, so I'll keep, I'll keep it brief. Right. He left, and once he left, he was uh, he, he spouted moderate views. I mean, I believe you know he denied uh, he he denounced nine eleven when it happened. Okay, um, so he was not preaching hell and, and and brimstone for America in those initial years. He had his own transformation, especially when he you know, when he left, and he was in Yemen. And he had a very strong following on the internet. Aulaki is the product. His timing is very interesting because he gained prominence as a preacher, um, not initially for jihadist talks. He actually would have volumes of of lectures on the life of the prophet and history of the companions, all this stuff. He had a, a following already, and is very you know very you know long sort of scholarly speeches and the like. And 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 his speeches were 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 on the internet, and you could download them and everything. And um, so Aulaki is interesting because in 2007, when he was released from a prison, he started a series of moves to try to start to influence um uh westerners and he started blogging he started going on uh radio shows internet radio shows and i noticed him so basically he came on my radar because i i saw wow oh alaki's out of prison what is he doing all in open source he's he's doing interviews he's basic he basically started to present himself as someone who could help young western muslims understand their role and his message was the west is not for you muslims and look at what America is doing in Iraq and Afghanistan. You know, uh, the West is against Islam and it is your duty. And he did some very tricky things. He, he really knew what would resonate. And this is maybe the lesson we need to, 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 to get. He knew that in the 
Islamic, the story of Islam, you know, what was what a key moment was this idea of migration, hijra. The Islamic calendar starts with this idea with the Muslims leaving Mecca for Medina. And he pointed to that as an analog, right? The idea of an analogy of uh, between the prophet's life and what you as a Muslim in the West should do. If you're in a place that's hostile to Islam, like America or Britain, you need to go to where you can freely practice your religion somewhere else like Afghanistan or, or Iraq or Somalia. And he made this comparison. So it's it was a real crafty uh, way of drawing the links between the scripture and the early Islamic history and today's conditions. So he did that and he recruited Westerners and people from Nigeria, you know, Brits. He recruited people from all over the world uh, uh, and he joined al-Qaeda. Um, so there's so much there. <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, so what, in terms of my my looking at him, so I covered him as he was doing this. And I basically pointed out within the intelligence community and with the, with the work that we did, our analysis, I pointed out that he was um, r- recruiting. He was, he was positioning himself specifically to recruit Westerners with a very targeted message. Now, here's a lesson, too, about the limits of intelligence and the limits of counterterrorism. You know, 2007, I was pointing – not a, we were pointing this out. We were pointing out what Aulaki was doing. So it's not like uh, no one knew <laughs> what what he was doing. He was inspired. He was, he was playing this role. But he continued to you know he continued to do this. So it, it lets you know that there are even limits to what we can stop. Um, and of course, he met his end as you described. But he still lives on in terms of his speeches and his thinking. So this is you know this is a this is an ongoing sort of long war. It's indeed a long war. Look, we've, this has been fascinating. We've gone on long, but I think it's been worth it, certainly for me, and I hope for the audience. I think, yeah, you've given us a great deal to think about, certainly for me. Uh, I hope we're going to continue this discussion for, for many, many <laughs> times, because we'll have much to talk about, yes. and also get at some point to your research and analysis and the complex but very uh, vital national security threats that you address in, in your work that you do make accessible to people like me and a lot of others so we can do that as well. So until then, thanks to you and thanks to all those uh, listening. We're looking forward to being with you again here on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Foreign Policy. As always, find and subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. If you like this week's episode and have feedback for us, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd appreciate your thoughts and your criticisms, too. We hope you'll join us again in the future, but until then, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.